Hey, I'm Sean. And I'm Jesse. And, and we're, we're the, the DMs, DMs of Vancouver. Vancouver. We're two newish DMs who are still getting the hang of the whole DM thing. So we sit down with a friend every couple of weeks and pick their brain on their approach to DMing. So come along as we figure out how to help our players have the best time possible at the gaming table. Hey folks, welcome to another episode. This week we're going to be talking about homebrew. Uh, today we're talking to Malcolm Wilson. How's it going, Malcolm? Oh, good, thanks. Yourself? Doing well. Uh, can you tell us a bit about yourself, like how long you've been playing and running and all that kind of stuff, and what types of games you generally run? Well, I've been playing consistently since uh, around 2004. I took the uh, the small town kid background, uh, so I didn't really get to play until I was in post-secondary here in Vancouver. Uh, and ever since I got the chance to start playing with uh, 3.5 edition, I've just been playing pretty consistently ever since. And I started running games about six or seven years ago, uh, and mostly mostly Dungeons and Dragons, and a lot of uh, Traveler as well, the sci-fi RPG. Okay, Mongoose. Man, cool. I have to play Traveler once. It didn't work out super well. It's a it's it's an interesting game. My, my understanding of Traveler is your session zero is like twice as long as a regular session because your characters keep dying before you can play them. <laughs> that is true. The uh, the edition done by Mongoose Publishing reduced that a little bit, but it's still a very interesting process. Like, I don't think you can outright die, but uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, so let's let's jump into it. Why use homebrew content? Uh, I think for me, like one of the biggest reasons to do homebrew is because I want I want to make the game my own, and because it's it's a lot of the fun for me is is building my own material, uh, creating my own worlds, giving the players new and interesting things to do. Um, I find like a lot of times like running stock content, whether that be you know in, in Forgotten Realms or wherever else, like I always have the itch to you know. I want, I want this to be my way. I want this, you know, I want I want this character to behave this way. I want this location to look like how I want it to look like. So I find it's just, I have a lot more fun. I get a lot more invested. And it means I can bring kind of my my stories and my things to the players. Yeah, that's that's kind of been my experience as well. Like I ran the starter kit for 5th edition. Mm -hmm. And while it was great to get me into d because that was my first experience DMing, mm -hmm. there were definitely times where I'm like, oh, I want to change things up. But I know if I change them too much, then the end might not make any sense. Yeah. Um, and so I've been running a homebrew campaign and it's fun, but at times a little terrifying, just like, oh my God, what if nobody likes what I've done? Oh, absolutely. That's always, always the fear. That's always yeah. the worry. Yeah. So what kind of content do you generally homebrew? Pretty much everything. Like uh, I use my own kind of custom setting that I've been iterating on over the years. For adventure content, I kind of mix between stuff I've written myself and content I've like, taken and and rewritten or reskinned from other things like my current campaign started with lost mine of fandelver from the starter kit but then i went and i basically renamed everything i read a bunch of the encounters and stuff like that because i find it really helpful because a lot of those adventures will have like the structure you need and then you can go in and plug in your own content um beyond that like i do a, um, a lot of custom enemies a lot of uh, custom magic items and with for the enemies i find it's it's great because i have a lot of experienced players and when i create my own enemies it's something new to them it's something surprising i mean like you know running goblins and trolls and everything else is those are exciting monsters and they're fun to play with but it's always great to kind of here's this new thing you have no idea what it does that's always a fun time for me as the dungeon master uh and then for magic items you know i like giving cool cool items they haven't seen before i like customizing items uh yeah i found that uh for the campaign that i'm running Creating custom magic items helps the world feel more real because the magic items, you can tie them into the world instead of just, you know, rolling in the DMG and being like, cool, sort of plus one or plus yeah. two or the 
bootstriding whatever you can create something that might have some of those properties but if they research it to find out like what is this thing then they can find out like oh this thing has got a history it's tied into the world and they feel like yeah we're adventurers finding stuff out about this world or whatever yeah for sure that's absolutely true um you know giving them named swords you know even if it's a plus one sword and you know they here's the name here's who wielded it and if you investigate it maybe there's a way you can make it better um, you know, it can give it additional properties. And uh, also, too, like, you can make items for specific players, too. Like, you know, if you've got a, a wizard who really likes evocation, you know, you can go, okay, I can give this, this player a custom item that'll make their abilities feel cooler and make them feel more special as well. As long as all the players agree that, like, yeah, that is the thing that goes to that player. Because I've, yeah. <laughs> I've had once or twice where I created something being like, yes, this is for player A, they will love it. And then... I give all this stuff to the party and then player B or C is like, ooh, I want that. And player A is like, yeah, you should take that. Like, Wait, what? <laughs> I mean, as long as they're happy with yeah. it, right? Yeah. Um, a way I've actually found to get around that and it ties into homebrewing is um, having unique, giving unique magical items to the characters that are like rewards from more powerful beings. Mm-hmm. Like one time my players rescued the storm giant who had been trapped in this like metallic sphere and he basically blessed one of them and gave i think their weapon gained the ability to cast a lightning arrow and then eventually i upgraded it to lightning bolt for them Mm -hmm. that was just because you know that particular character had been the most impressive in the fight and it also kind of fit with their personality and stuff yeah that's a great way to do it is to to tie it to something they've done because then it feels not just like you know they pulled this magic item out of the loot pile but they did something to really earn it and they're invested in it so do you have any uh like quick tips or anything like that for somebody that is first looking at and thinking about homebrewing their own stuff yeah i mean i think the real the best thing to do is just kind of start doing it like even if say you're running you know storm king's thunder and you you're you're set on on doing that you know you can do things like you know replace some of the monsters homebrew some monsters or, or items things like that start getting practice and start doing it because what you'll find is is that as you practice doing it, you know, you'll see how your players react to these things. You'll see how they give you feedback, both, you know, you can ask them, say, hey, what do you think of this monster? And you'll see how they fight it. Like, did they did they not have fun fighting it? Did they think it was awesome? Yeah, and uh, um, another big one is to, to look at what other people do and to deconstruct it. Like, I know when I started homebrewing monsters, uh, I was very literally by the book on how the, the DMG lays it out. And I found that a lot of the monsters were kind of a slog. Like, you know, they took a while to kill. They weren't that threatening. And I'm like, well, what's going on here? And so I went into the, the, the monster manual and I started breaking down the stock creatures based on the create a monster rules in Dungeon Master's Guide. And I found, oh, they, they build them so that, you know, they've got fewer hit points but do more damage. And, and how they balance it to keep the combat going. And so once I was able to do that, it, it, my monsters got better because I knew how, you know, the, the pros do it. And that gave me a lot. Um... And just finding stuff like on Reddit, on the Dungeon Masters Guild, there's lots of people homebrewing their own content. And you can look at, you know, you can get great ideas from how, what they do. Uh, like I've gotten got great ideas for not just specific magic items or spells or features, but ways to, to make them newer. Like, you know, this this person um, makes their, their items progress in this way. I'm like, that's a really great idea. I can take that and use it in mind. Um, so, yeah, that, those are kind of my things is, you know, practice and get re- response. Uh, deconstruct other people's work and uh, see how other people make it, you know, see what, see what else is out there for homebrew. Yeah. There's a couple of subreddits that are really great. Like there's one fellow who runs uh, one called monster a day. Yeah. And his his stuff is amazing. And it seems to have slowed down recently, but 
just looking at you know a picture of a an owl that's low contrast taken at night so all you see is like eyes and this mm-hmm. shadowy shape and he spits out some stats for it and also looking at some of the other subreddits where somebody will put up a piece of content and uh, they're basically looking for play testers and like people will respond being like yeah like i had to tweak it this way because uh it was doing too much damage or this item like was too versatile or the downsides are too sharp and edgy or anything mm-hmm. like that and it can be useful to just see that process happening so you get yeah you get a better feeling for like when i want to create a monster these are the things that i need to be aware of and Speaking of things you need to be aware of, are there any pitfalls that you've run into when creating stuff that you think are good to um, point out? Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, there's always the, the the risk of creating something like that on paper you think is going to be great. And it just, it's not. Whether that's because it's it decimates the players or because they're just not having fun with it or because... one A recent example is I made this, what I thought was a really cool magic item. It was a cloak with a bunch of utility properties. And then I gave it to the player and after a few sessions, he was never using it. And we kind of talked about it offline and it, basically it did do stuff, but the stuff it did was complicated and not... The abilities took a lot to use and they weren't very commonly uh, usable. So it was, it was too complicated. It wasn't really worth it. So we kind of went, okay, we're going to take this back, make this into a flavor item, and just make it something simple and, and usable. So that's one thing is, is kind of getting too too invested in, in what you're doing or getting too far down the rabbit hole, I guess. Like it's oftentimes better just to make something that's going to happen and be used. Like I know with monsters, like a lot of times I'll go really, really complicated with monsters, give them all these abilities and all this situational stuff. But when you remember that 5th edition, the average combat only lasts 2 to 3 rounds, tops, and that, like even for bosses, you're not going to have a chance to use all of these, these abilities and all these complicated things. You're better off kind of picking a couple of cool things that the players are going to see and be able to react to and run with those. If any of my players are listening, that average is totally incorrect. Just ignore what he said. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, that makes sense. And... You brought up a good point of like if something isn't working, it's a good idea to talk to your players about like, hey, like this thing that you got, you're not using it very much. Is it just because you forgot you had it or is it just not fun or too complicated or not intuitive? And being open to reworking something, I think, is a a very important point to keep in mind. For sure. And I think players are generally aware of these things, too. Like, you know, if they get something new and, and it's cool, but it's way too powerful they're probably going to realize that and, and most players will agree to, you know, okay, here's how we can step it back. Here's how we can make it work a little better because it's all about the table, right? And about, and about uh, uh, making sure your game is fun. One thing that was really kind of a big change in thinking for me that helped me was that to remember you're, when you're balancing your items and when you're making your stuff, you're balancing for your table. You're not writing for the internet. You're not making a whole new product to sell. I mean, if you are doing that, awesome for you. But I mean, most of the time when I'm, when I'm making a monster and when I'm making a magic item or I'm making a new class feature, I don't really care whether or not it's going to be balanced in all situations. What I care about is, is it going to make the game more fun at my table? And I think that's a big one. Like I've created a, a, you know, a subclass for Bard, for example, that in a normal game would be unnecessary be overpowered it would take the specialness away from a fighter but my game didn't have any fighters so by giving the bard this it made them cooler and it made my whole the whole party better so i think that's that's a real key thinking is balance for your table make for your table yeah on that so something that would be overpowered in adventure league or if it was sold in a like stock wizards of the coast module or something is fine for your table as long as you understand how that fits into your table yeah absolutely 
For sure. Ultimately, that's why Adventure League has rules for their characters anyway, right? Yep. Even some official, I think, Aarakocra are banned. Because they're, I think the flight speed just ends up being too much of a, a hassle for people. Yeah, I can see that, yeah. When you take a pre-existing adventure and working homebrew into that setting, what, how do you go about doing that? I think the the most important thing is to kind of get to know the material ahead of time. Like the I, I mentioned Lost Mine of Fandale earlier, and when I started running it, the first thing I did is kind of sit sit down, read it through, get a sense for, you know, I, I made some point forms, you know, like here's here's all the locations, here's the important stuff. And then I started looking and I was like, this is, the structure is good. What don't I like? What is it that I kind of lo- I look at and I'm like, I don't really like that encounter. That doesn't really work for the story I want to do. So that's where you can start looking at, okay, I'm going to replace that. And if it's, instead of, you know, rewriting an existing adventure, but you're taking another adventure and plugging it into your campaign, it can be uh, deconstructing and scavenging and thinking about, your, you know, you're, you're, you're salvaging something and you're saying, okay, what parts can I take out of this and put in my own thing? And a lot of times for me, it comes down to just read it and the stuff I respond to, oh, that's cool. That's a cool moment. That's a cool encounter. Or that's a cool character. Like, take those things and, and, and plug them in. Yeah, pull them apart. File the serial numbers off. Reskin it. I know when I first started, I had this real mindset that I had to do everything myself. You know, I had to, everything had to be my own. I had to write everything. And I'm like, I don't have time. I don't have the time. I don't have the energy. And at the end of the day, it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not, my game is not better if I, just because I did that. My game is better when I come up with good stuff. And, you know, taking the Red Hand of Doom and pulling encounters out of it or pulling, taking the structure and plugging that into my campaign, even if it's ultimately unrecognizable, makes my game better. So, yeah, I was just going to say that it doesn't really matter where you get stuff from as long as your players are enjoying it. And For sure. And I've seen some stuff online where people do, like, kind of talk down a little bit when people say, like, oh, I took the story structure from this movie and some elements from these comics and stuff like that. And at the end of the day, not everybody is either creative enough or has enough time to be able to create the kind of adventures we all want to run for sure and just pulling stuff from sources and it's something that happens subconsciously anyways so oh, yeah you might as well just embrace it and use it to make your stuff better yeah. and i mean a lot of times those those movies and comics are popular and they resonate for a reason like the 13th warrior whatever you think of the movie that would make an awesome D adventure like just pull that out stick it in your like that it's a great structure for it it would make it fantastic so why not take the plot of that movie Put it in your setting and make it an adventure. Yeah. Like, I mean, there's no reason not to because your players probably won't recognize it. And even if they do, they'll probably think it's cool. I think I think when you're when you're doing this, when you're when you're rewriting or scavenging from adventures, the most important rule that I always have to, to remember is start with the stuff that's gonna be your next session. You know, like running Lost Mine of Fandelver, uh, I ended up replacing the end dungeon with one of my own. And I kept working on it, going, No, 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 no. that's three sessions from now. I need to work on tomorrow stuff you know what i mean yeah that's that's the key thing is is, because what i find is like the the adventure will change and evolve as you go through it so work on what you need for the next session and a lot of times you'll find that things the players say or what they want to do will change what you were going to do next time anyway yeah uh and so you know being flexible and being focused on the the immediate because your player the players don't read the adventure they don't know what's coming if you change it they're never going to know. Yeah. So, yeah. And it's funny that you brought up the Lost Minds of Fendelver a couple of times now because it's actually, it's something on my list of things that I want to rework is that last dungeon. Mm-hmm. I want to completely rework that. Keep all of the elements, like try and keep as many of the encounters and stuff, but 
rework it so that it's not twice the size of any table that you play on. Because <laughs> that was my problem when I played it was that uh, it was like I used uh, some the kind of graph paper that you'd use like in mm-hmm. an office to show stuff off. Like it was bigger than this table. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> and that's with 10 foot squares. It was ridiculous. Um, and it's on my list of things to go back and rework it because I feel like it'd be a good exercise to try and take some official content and mm-hmm. rework it. Oh, for sure. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. Yeah, I plan to do that with them. Um, Fourth Ed came out with, had a Dungeon Delve book, and it's basically just... That's a great book. Yeah, I, I'm having trouble finding a physical copy, but I found it a cheap PDF at least. But it's um, it's like, what, 20 adventurers, like, scaled by level, basically? Yeah. And they're, they're just, like, individual dungeons, and I plan on eventually, like, going through that book and changing them all to Fifth Ed and, like, figuring out what I want to do with them, just because, yeah. like... Having those plug-in adventure, little mini adventures prepared when you're, you know, suddenly thrown for a loop or suddenly your players want to go see this thing, it would be helpful. <laughs> for yeah. sure. And I find, like, even, I mean, I, I've read through that book. It's a great book. Um, and I find, like, a lot of times reading those materials, uh, it'll spark ideas. Like, you know, it, you know, maybe you might find one. You're like, this is such a cool scenario. I'm not just going to, like, keep it for when they go off the rails. I'm going to take this and they're going to do this dungeon like yeah. you know you can find cool stuff by just reading other materials and fourth edition is such a gold mine of cool stuff yeah uh, i i missed fourth edition it was my my first edition yeah. i never got to play it nearly as much as i wanted to it's uh i mean it was i feel it's much maligned perhaps a bit unfairly mm. um uh, yeah i picked up their dragon annual for fourth Ed a while ago mm-hmm. and i kind of just leafed through it but there was this one encounter that i ended up reading a lot of and the idea is you're in an elemental plane or trying to get into an elemental plane. And there's this place where you're trying to do this ritual to open this portal. Mm-hmm. And then you get a, a, ambushed by, like, frost goblins or something. Um, right. Not important. The important thing is, as the combat starts, something in the sky starts reacting to it. And it turns out you're on an elemental's, like, kind of territory. And depending what you do, mm-hmm. he will start to reward you. But he is enjoying the chaos, so he'll also start to reward your enemies if they do well. So anytime you score a crit or the enemies score a crit, or your players score a crit, rather, basically there's a failure or a reward. Right. The old kind of um, fourth ed, I'm blanking now, skill challenge kind of model. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I'm going to use that at some point. I don't know why, how. Might not be a wind elemental, might be something entirely different, but that's just a cool idea, and it's pretty straightforward once you look yeah. at it yeah, and you take that structure and that mechanic you can reskin it and reapply it however you need i mean that could work great for an arena combat or a literal god watching or whatever you want yeah. and yeah you got it too yeah yeah and the this kind of loops back around to like stealing things is that there is so much stuff out there for D. like oh, yeah. we're on the fifth edition there are four previous editions and tons of stuff from dragon magazine tons of stuff online that people have done and there's so much stuff out there that if you're ever in a pinch or you need something to just be like i didn't have enough time to plan i just need to throw something together so that the players have something to do there is something out there that you can find and either just take uh use it outright or just do some quick tweaks so it fits into your setting and for sure and you don't have to worry too much. Yeah, well, and, and the DMs Guild is so good for that. Like, the amount of stuff. And, like, people have gone in and... There's a series called Classic Modules Today, which are just take, a, a like, an AD&D module and give you, here's how to reskin it, very literally, 
for 5th edition. You know, here's what you replace this monster with. It's a great series. They're all super cheap. So, yeah, as you say, you know, you, you, I need an adventure. There you go. You've got something in your pocket to do it. Yeah, there's there's a few people on there who I think do, like, weekly micro-adventures, and it's like a small wizard's tower that you need to investigate, and they'll have hooks and all those things, and a lot of them are pay what you want, too. Like, not all of them are, like, $15, yeah. $20. Yeah, and I think one of my favorite videos from... Um... Matt Colville is the one where he talks about reskinning us uh, some second edition. Like he's done a couple of them now, where he talks about reskinning second edition adventures to use in fifth edition. Yeah, yeah, it's it just makes good sense. Like there's lots of good content out there. Use it. Yeah, that video or one of his was actually kind of where I had had that brainstorm of you know what, like I can I can let myself do this. Like because I was still kind of stuck in that mentality of in order to be a real dungeon master, I have to write it myself. And then I was like, that's crazy. Like no. No, like I'm already making enemies. I'm already making items. Like why? Why shouldn't I look at those story structures? Uh, his, what's his favorite one? The the against the cult of the reptile god. Yeah, like that's a great little adventure, and it comes with a town. You can just stick it in your in your. There's your town. Even if you don't run that adventure, there's a town for you. Yeah. You know, um, it, it's stuff like that that just it it makes your life easier as a dungeon master because a lot of it is is work you don't necessarily need to do. Your players are not going to care if you got this village from your brain or from an old adventure because it's the village and it's got everything they need. Yeah, and I found uh, personally one of the biggest things for me is like sometimes coming up with new NPCs. Um, like sometimes I can figure out like, okay, I need a general or I need a merchant or mm -hmm. something. And the biggest help for me has been just like video games and movies, like being able to think of like, okay, I'm going to use... Stellan Skarsgård from this movie to use the mannerisms or like this character and I'm going to like sure. talk like them just so that like I don't have to spend a whole bunch of time trying to brainstorm on say like how does this person talk what is their mannerisms all this kind of stuff because yeah there's so much out there just use it oh for sure and I mean like sites like Don John with their their random generators can be a huge boon too yeah because like I, I just uh, I'm writing a new adventure now and I'm, I'm detailing the starting village I need 50 NPCs I will detail the most important five ones myself. And after that, I'm going to go to that random generator and go, Thook! and here's, you know, characters with some stats and some personalities, and I can grab them and tweak them how I want and just put them in my level. And I think for me, doing stuff like that is really helpful because I kind of put the responsibility on the generator uh, and, and it, it forces me to do things I wouldn't normally because a lot of the times I found when I'm forced to come up with an NPC on the spot, it will often be some variation on Carl Urban. I don't know why it's that it, it's a gravelly voiced white dude who's there for some reason. And so by by, you know, forcing myself to use characters from movies using random generators, I get a lot more diversity in my in my cast. I get more interesting characters out of it. And I don't and it forces me to kind of think outside of my normal. This is this is what comes top to the top of my mind. I have spent way too much time in the world generator on Don oh, John and way too much time playing around with the calendar. Oh, I know. Um, oh, I need to build a calendar for my game. I, I spent, Calendars are hard. I spent, I spent like a couple of days straight playing around with the calendar so that I could have a day a couple of years in the future where the first day of the year where all four moons were full moons. <laughs> See, four moons. That's I only have two. And I ended up... Uh, Making so my calendar just happens is exactly the, the same as the cycle of mo of the moons, because uh, yeah, making calendars is hard. And and the, kind of the worst thing is that like I need to start working this information into the campaign I'm running mm -hmm. because those four moons actually I think they're all eclipsed or so, it's either all eclipsed or all full, but that has a significance. Like there is 
they're still a couple years out from that depending on how things go but trying it's, it's one of those things that i found can be a trap when you spend a lot of time looking at stuff online like oh that's cool oh that's cool oh that's cool and finding stuff like maps and calendar generators <laughs> is that sometimes well most of the time less is more because you're able to introduce it to your players and having tons of like having this huge calendar that i am tracking time on that my players have no idea about is time i could be spent doing other things for sure yeah i mean like i i have i have a calendar too and it's it's very very basic it's just every month is exactly the same as the lunar cycle and the year perfectly contains 13 lunar cycles because I spent about a day on Wikipedia reading through different ways of making calendars and my brain hurt and I'm just like, no, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to cheat this. I'm going to do it the easy way. If anyone asks, a wizard did it. Um, and my players don't care. They think it's cool. I can tell them what the date is. I can tell them how much time has passed. And that's really all they care about. Like, that's mostly what I want to do with mine is I just want to be able to be like, okay, you had downtime. You, you, know, you finished on the 20th of the Raven Queen's month. Yeah. And now it's the 5th of Iron's month. Yeah, exactly. Go. Yeah. <laughs> How do you make sure your content is balanced? So when it comes to stuff like like magic items and class features, like I talked a little bit about this earlier, and that my main focus for those is is, is balance for the table. Yeah. Like you know, and I mean, once you run for long enough, you can kind of give get the sense of of how things will fly. Like I know that if I give a second level player a plus three sword, that's not balanced. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, so it can just be a question of of getting a feel for it over time, and making sure like. If you give give everyone a cool item, you know, that's kind of my philosophy. Like, I know, like, in the games I'm running, but my, my hope is that by level 5, everyone's got at least one cool magic item that's theirs. Um, so that helps keep the balance, and that helps kind of smooth over any issues with this person's item is super useful and maybe a little more than this person's, because they're all having fun. For enemies and encounters, that's a little bit harder, because, like, the, you know, the CR calculations, those things can take you so far. But they don't tell the whole story, and you can easily get in situations where the CR says this, but the encounter is actually not. It's, it's something very different. It's much harder, or it's a slog. Or it's a cakewalk. <laughs> or it's a cakewalk. Yeah, like, I've had a few of those where I just, like, you know, I, I made a couple sessions ago, I made this awesome boss that, you know, marches up out of the lake to, to eat them, and they nuked it in a round and a half, and I'm like, what what happened? And I went back, and I looked at the numbers, and I'm like, oh, yeah, I had half as many hit points as it needed to, and stuff like that. But I think that the most important one for learning is, is, again, to talk to your players like and, and look at how they're reacting. Like, you know, I threw a monster at, at uh, you know, a game I ran ages ago. I threw some custom monsters at the players, and they were not having fun. You know, these things, they took too long to kill. They weren't doing enough damage. And I could see, okay, these are not fun. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to redo them, you know. And the other thing, too, is, is like I, I'll throw a crazy boss monster at the players. And afterwards, you know, I'll go to the couple and say, hey, what'd you think? You know, did, were you having fun? Was it, did you feel like I was punishing you or like it was a fair challenge? So re reading your players and asking them directly is a huge help because it starts to give you an idea of how they'll react and how, you know, you can know that, you know, last time I did this, players loved it. So maybe I'll do it again. Or last time I did this, they did not like it. So I'm going to stay away from doing that stuff. One thing that I've run into with when it comes to monsters, because I've mostly just been using stuff from the Monster Manual and from mm -hmm. the Tome of Beasts, and what I've found with the CR ratings is that when this when you get to a point where you're like when you need to run like a deadly or a hard encounter, it can suddenly become really swingy, especially sure. if you forget an, a a monster ability or two. Mm -hmm. um, and I feel like for me that'd probably be a reason for me that I need to start creating my own monsters because the problem i've run into is i'll 
pick a monster like a roper and I'll put it into encounter like, okay, cool. That's got the right CR based on the kobold fight club. Mm-hmm. And I know that it's got tentacles and it, it'll be fun because they won't know it. Like unless they're poking every stalactite or stalagmite that they pass, they're not going to know. It's might and tight is down. Yeah. I can never keep them. Safe. Yeah. But you know, it'll be a fun like surprise as they're like trying to sneak through a cave of goblins in or whatever. And like halfway through the battle realizing that like it's got some extra things that i didn't properly read and suddenly the tone of the battle shifts to like this is going well to oh no we have to push it off the cliff and one of us needs to die to do it (laughs) uh, yeah for sure and for me it feels like that would probably be the hardest is that the cr and balancing monsters because stuff like magic items and and other pieces of, of content that you homebrew feels like it'd be easier to balance because you have it's easier to figure out how that'll affect the game for sure whereas when it's a monster because combat is decided on the roll of dice so something that should be hard can be easy because your players rolled five crits in a row something that should be easy can be hard because they keep missing so gauging how to balance that especially especially for me i guess maybe not for other people but for me it feels like that would probably be one of the harder things to figure out how to balance. Sure. I think I think the biggest thing, and this is something I've kind of observed over playing, and something that I think uh, Chris Perkins and Mike Merles and stuff have talked about is that it's better to err on the side of, of I don't want to say glass cannon, but definitely more 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 dishing out more damage more than they're able to take damage. Because I think um, Dungeons and Dragons Fifth Edition really thrives when everyone is is hitting. Uh, I know, like, like in, you know, in Pathfinder and previous editions, you know, you get these crazy high armor classes, and so it's just a question of hitting the damn thing to do damage in the first place. Whereas 5th edition, because it's got, you know, bounded accuracy and everything's kept lower, it's much more about you want your players to be hitting the monster every turn, if, if at all possible, you know. Like, you'll see a lot of boss monsters have, you know, armor class 13 or armor class 15. And it's not until you get into, like, dragons and stuff that that goes up to 18, you know, and that's starting to get really high yeah it's the uh, really epic stuff that has like 20 or 22 right and i mean I'm, by the time they're fighting that they've got an attack bonus of like 14 so it kind of balances out yeah but i, I think that's a, the real key for me to do is, is i want stuff that's splashy but it's also gonna die like you don't want to create like tanks just don't work super well in fifth edition because it becomes a slog uh which is not fun unless it's something where you can have it be in like an environment-based battle where they can tie up like get that tank stuck or they can take it out by using sure. the arena or something so that instead of them poking with sticks for an hour you yeah. can just be like like there's a bunch of stuff that if they if they clue into it they're like oh if we do this this and this like we can drop it into the lava yeah for sure that's i mean that's the key is, is you always want the players to be doing something productive like because i rolled to attack you missed that's boring yeah and doing that like one round okay three rounds in a row no that that'll kill the fun yeah, so, acceptable. Yeah, of. exactly. Yeah, and I mean that—that that was my experience. I think with with Pathfinder older editions, a lot as you get that a lot. It's like, yeah, I got three attacks, all of them miss. I guess I'm going to stand here like a lemon because that's all I can do. Whereas if you know CRs are, are either lower and it's more hit points, or you give it those environmental stuff, as you say, like give the players stuff to do, and they'll have more fun than if they just feel I have no options here. Yeah, and I think one thing that I've run into, and I'm curious if you've run into this with homebrew stuff, because I've run into this with just stuff from the monster manual is it feels like there's some monsters where they are that kind of like glass cannon mentality Mm -hmm. where they hit hard which means that like in your first round it's like oh this character is unconscious now making death saves or they're out of the fight because of a status effect yeah is that something that you felt that you've had to be aware of when homebrewing monsters or is it something that just like 
That's just kind of how the game goes. I mean, no, no, for sure. I, I've not yet been brave enough to do like the, the save or die stuff, like petrification, things like that. I've, I'm not brave enough to throw those at my players yet. Just because, as you say, like you fail those two saves, you are done. But yeah, no, it, it's definitely like you want you want monsters to be scary, but you don't want to you don't want to kill two PCs or, or or put them into that death spiral, especially not in the first round. So that's why, like, I love things like grapple and incapacitate because you can do some damage, but and the player is now grabbed and held, you know, they're being waved around the air by a tentacle. They're 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 in danger, but they're not out of the fight. They can still do stuff, but there's an obvious threat to them. You know what I mean? So I love stuff like that. I love Swallow Hole probably more than I should. <laughs> uh, I, I think things like that where you can scare the player by doing something without outright killing them, those are great. Yeah, because I feel like the like stuff like Petrification or like Charm Effects where they might have to start fighting their party members or just something that does enough damage that if you accidentally crit in the first round, that player is at zero HP. Yeah. Those are the ones that like... I've used them a couple of times now and it can be... Thrilling after the battle is done and everybody came out okay, but there's been a couple of times where players like scrape by the skin of their teeth through that encounter without somebody dying. And yeah, it's fun if everybody survives, but if somebody dies like in your first first or second session, it's like oh yeah. Damn. Well, I mean, you never want to be that that player who's the one who has to sit there through the whole fight. I remember there was one game I played in three point five, and I was playing a, a Minotaur Samurai. I was awesome at stabbing stuff. I had terrible wisdom. So my, my, my saves against fear were awful. And I remember there was one battle where I got hit with a fear before I even had my first turn. I spent, the, the effect was your character runs 100 feet at a speed of 30. So I was just, I'm just running for rounds and then it wears off and I got to run all the way back. So that was, that was the whole encounter for me. Was, you know, everyone's having this awesome fight. I'm running away and then I'm running back. <laughs> so, you know, you, you don't want to be that player because that kind of takes some of the joy away, but. Finding those way to threaten people to, to put them down or to, to make them work together is, is I think, the really important thing. It's finally you mentioned fear because I think that's one of the things I do like about fear in 5th edition is that it's not that you have to run away. It's just you can't move closer. For sure, yeah. And they give you cool tools for how to deal with it, you know, whether it's like, you know, go to bard and support or you find other things to do. Like the fight I had last session, the wizard got feared. That doesn't do anything to saving throws on, say, fireball, right? So the wizard is impacted but not ineffective. You know, if you're smart, you can do things, you can get support, you can find other options to do. Well, that's like a great cinematic moment, too, for the character, because they're afraid, they're terrified, but they're still fighting. Yeah. So we've already talked about this a little bit, but if you create something, whether it's a magic item or a monster um, or even other stuff, um, I'm not sure how a setting can be too powerful or too weak. but class options. Class options, Mm -hmm. yeah. How do you recognize that you've made something that's just either way overpowered or underpowered and how do you deal with that i mean if it's something that i give to the players like a class option for example you can it'll be it should become apparent at the table pretty quickly like i mentioned earlier with the cloak that was just not getting used or some class abilities that are just they're the player's not having fun with them the player's not using them they're not or or they're just running over everything else and the other players are like twiddling their thumbs because they've got this, this awesome ability that stuff's obvious pretty quickly um, and as i said like just talk to the players because often they'll recognize when, when there's a problem uh, and sometimes you know if, if one ability is a little more powerful you can also just bring everyone else up too it doesn't always have to be taking something away uh, so there's ways to balance like that when it's something that i as the dm i'm doing to them uh they'll tell me usually if something's not balanced i'll tell you pretty quickly in that case i mean you can always you know 
edit on the fly behind a screen, you know, if a monster is just wrecking them, suddenly it only has a third of the hit points it did, so they're going to kill it pretty quickly. Stuff like that. Or, oh, suddenly maybe its motivation is to leave when it, when it takes enough damage, you know. You could do stuff to get past that, it, you, you, met, you made it too powerful feeling. Um, and then you can always, you know, take it and after the session analyze why did this go bad and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to edit this. Uh, one example is like I made a custom uh, kind of zombie enemy um, and then I threw it, excuse me, I threw it at the players in a fight and they, and it was not fun. Like it was just, it was just gross and it wasn't effective and combat dragged on. So I said, after, after, I, I didn't need them to tell me, I could see this. So I went and I, I edited it and the next time they, they saw these undead, they were a little different, you know, they were a little more decayed, they're more brittle. So they were able to see, oh, these have changed, they're different now, they're going to behave differently. And I was able to have a more fun combat with it. You talked about uh, if somebody, if you give something to a player and that player is now like a power level or two higher than the rest of the party and is just, you know, mm -hmm. face rolling through combat and everybody's sitting there twiddling their thumbs, making everybody else a little bit more powerful. How do you deal with that and creating encounters and dealing with the CR of like a party that is all, they're all level five, but they're power level, like maybe they're actually like six or seven. Uh, yeah, that can be a, a real tough thing, especially as players start to get higher and higher levels. I mean, like, um, I'm a huge Critical Role fan, and I'm watching the arc as they're getting the... I don't know if you guys watch it. Uh, I've seen... I stopped watching a little while ago because I can't handle watching three hours of content <laughs> while I'm Fair trying enough. to work. <laughs> and there's this one arc where they all... They, they go on a quest. They get a whole bunch of magic items, and, they, and these, they're awesome magic items. They're high-level magic items. And you can see their power spike way up, and you can see... like it, it's That's what's been really great, is you can see... Because a lot of people never get to see epic-level content or even high-level stuff. I think most games end around level 5 just because, you know, things happen. So getting to watch that and you go, oh, yeah, this is what happens when everyone gets more powerful. The encounters are so much harder to balance. Honestly, it's just kind of figuring it out. I don't really have a good answer for that one beyond just read the table uh, and, and adjust behind the screen as you can, you know. I, I'm kind of fingers crossed, but I haven't yet run into a case where things have gotten completely out of hand on the players and I, I can't control them or they're they're hitting way above their, their level class. Um, but yeah, I, th I think that's most of what I said. Just read your table, see what they're doing. And if things are out of hand, you can just go to the player and like, I'm sorry, but I gave you this item. It's way too much. We need to rein it in a little bit. And chances are they'll recognize and they might be disappointed, but they'll, they'll go, you know, it's for the good of the game and we'll work together. And, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. I was just thinking about that because I've been watching a bunch of the extra credits videos recently. Mm -hmm. And they talked about, they did a two or three video little series on power creep. And they used Hearthstone as an example. And mm -hmm. just talking about how you can have stuff that is like above or below like the power mm -hmm. curve of your game. But if, if everything starts to come above that power level, then power curve, then like it can become very hard to balance things because suddenly everything has to be more powerful. Oh, for sure. I think that's a bigger concern when you're dealing with a competitive system like Hearthstone or, or War yeah, Games or whatever sure. else. Um, you know, when it's when it's a D&D game, especially if it's a home game rather than something like Adventurers League, again, like you can balance for your table. And if it's, you know, now all the goblins have double hit points and it kind of works out, then you can do that. The other thing I found is that because... Fifth edition is so much based on keeping things constrained. You know, uh, armor classes never get too high. Ability scores never get too bounded high. Bounded accuracy. Yeah, bounded accuracy. Stuff. As long as you're working within those, things will still generally work out okay, I find. Um, just because the whole system is kind of built with that in mind rather than like earlier editions where that power creep is just, it, it's part of the game, you know. Yeah. The, the, the exponential growth of, of characters over time. 
Yeah, yeah. I think just just identifying those limits that that you know, especially Merles and Perkins talk about, and see how they how they built their stuff, and you, you build yours the same way, and you can get a good sense for how not to make things that are ridiculous. Yeah, and I think keep coming back to this of like balancing for your table, and I think that's important because you're right; it's not a competitive game. They're not playing against each other. As long as the players at your table, all of the players are having fun. Yeah. Like, I think that's probably where it's harder for a DM to like balance. If you've made them too powerful and now you have to figure out how to make the monsters more powerful without it turning into like, oh, now they're all one-hitting the, the players. <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. That is that is that can be a huge problem, yeah. As you mentioned earlier, the uh, kind of adjusting the hit points on the fly. Mm-hmm. That's, that's my most used kind of DM hack. It's just being like, oh, they're kind of decimating this thing that's supposed to be an important boss fight. Let's add 50 hit points. It'll yeah. last another round and it'll feel satisfying. For sure. Oh, look, it has this extra attack it didn't use before that it's yeah. going to throw out now. Stuff like that can be, you know. Yeah, or, oh, this is turning into a slug. Okay, the next time someone hits it, it's bloodied. That's half That's yeah. half its hit points. Yeah, for sure, for sure. I mean, one of the ones I always do is, you know, this this monster has four hit points left. I could let it go another round or I could just be like, oh, that last attack killed it, you win. Yeah, you know what I mean? Like, I do that a lot too. Uh, yeah. And and I mentioned earlier, like the the average combat length. Um, I'm sure it's not the same in all games, but I know I know <laughs> it's 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 been like that for me a lot, and I know it's been talked about by the the Watsi guys. If having a more powerful item means you know they kill a monster and a half per round instead of one monster per round, they feel cool, and it's not actually that big of an impact on your game uh, because you're not building expecting you know like like 10 round these mass these much more involved and lengthy combats where much more kind of stuff is being layered together it's okay if they're that much more powerful like one of the ones that uh gets talked about a lot is what happens if you have a tabaxi monk who can like double their movement and basically end up moving in something like Mach 2 yeah like and it, and it sounds totally scary but at the same time i'm i i can't get too worried about it because a they're gonna have to do a bunch of work to get that and b it's not going to break your table because it's not going to be useful that much anyway. So if they get to feel awesome about it, good for them. You know what I mean? Same thing like people present me with, you know, oh, you know, if you multi-class this and this with this with this race option, blah, blah, you get this, these crazy combat abilities. Cool. You spend the, the seven levels to do that. You put all your time into that and you'll feel awesome in combat. It's not going to break the game because combat only lasts so long anyway. So you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. If combat gets shortened, you get more time for more content. Exactly. You know what I mean? So it's 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 one thing I really like about 5th edition is whether you're homebrewing or whatever else, it's really tolerant of that kind of stuff, i found. Um, I haven't I, I haven't played it, uh, you know, like level 15 and up and stuff, so I don't know how much the power creep affects that. But I know that a lot of the times, yeah, let the players be awesome. You know what I mean? Yeah. As long as everybody gets to be awesome, I think, is, is the main thing. Yeah, like, for sure. Like we've been saying, balancing for the table. Yeah. So how do you tell if something that you've homebrewed is necessary? Because something that I've run into is, like, I keep coming up with ideas, whether it's for setting, like... I spent way too long in coming up with like an entire world for my campaign when mm-hmm. all I really needed was just like a small little region and or like magic items or stuff like that. How do you tell like after you've preferably before you've created something if it's really necessary for your game? <laughs> that is a good question. I mean, for me, building the homebrew stuff is part of is a lot of the fun. So that's kind of why I do a lot of it. But I think like the most important thing is, is like, is this going to show up at the table tomorrow? I think is a big question. Like, I know like I've done, I did a bunch of work building my world on, you know, the politics and the history of the world. It never comes up at the table. Occasionally I'll mention something that's happening in the background. 
the player unless the players are directly infected, they don't really it doesn't they don't really care. So I, that's not something I ever I, I don't need to go deep into that. I can just establish that this is something that's in the world and leave it at that until it becomes important. If that's like for setting stuff, I think basically just like if that that mantra of is it going to be used tomorrow? Like is it going to impact the game? Like do I like is any of the work I do in this going to going to, to matter? You know what I mean? I mean we can we can as dungeon masters can do all this work. You can build all this stuff, but you're just going to exhaust yourself after a while. Um, but it's fun to do at the same time, so it's hard to stop yourself. Yeah, you know what I mean, like I've I've got you know like notebooks full of background material and story ideas and dungeons and stuff I'm never going to use that I've just written because I can't stop myself. So yeah, I mean it's just it's just a question of of thinking. You know, is writing the 500 year history of this kingdom that's on the other side of the ocean does that actually do anything? Is it enough to just jot down some ideas and wait until a player asks and then make things up or, or, or kind of defer? I think like there's kind of this talk of, of spiral world building and it kind of can, can apply to a lot of things where you build what you need for your first session. You build that village in that first dungeon and then as the players move you just spiral your world building out and expand it around them. And you can do that for a lot of stuff like Lost Mine of Fandelver for example. When I rewrote it I, I changed the, the enemy factions. So I knew that I was going to need new bosses and stuff like that, um, but I wasn't going to need them right now. So there's no point building those until they're going to be in the session. So that's 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 I guess that's my answer is do what you need for for the next session. Yeah, because something that I've discovered a little bit from like reading stuff online and people talking about their own experiences, but quite a bit from just doing this podcast is that DMs seem to tend to be the kind of person who can tends to fall into rabbit holes really easily oh, yeah. whether it's creating content or like researching stuff because they think it'll be a cool idea that they want to think about or planning out stories and the thing we all have to keep reminding ourselves is that the players could all decide to go in the complete opposite direction so like plan as little as you can okay. well and a lot of times players have better ideas than you do yeah like i there have been many instances and i will never tell them when this happens but where the <laughs> players have theorized something about the story and i'm like that is a much better idea than what i had in mind so yes that is what's going to happen <laughs> and they'll never know i mean i have i have one player who's a pretty experienced dungeon master he i think he picks it up when i do it but uh in general like i mean if the players have a better idea than what you were writing you should do that yeah, you know and I mean? it makes the players feel even better because they're like, oh my god, it was the thing. It, like, exactly, it makes it yeah. feel that much yeah. more awesome. There's a, a game called Apocalypse World, and it's spin-off Dungeon World. They both have this really, really interesting way of how you as the Dungeon Master tell stories and build the world. Because it's very focused on improv and building off what the players say. And it's something that was kind of a, a, a brainstorm for me, because I'd never thought of it. Because again, like... I thought to be a real dungeon master, you had to have all the answers. You had to come up with it all yourself. And so in Apocalypse World, I'm reading the system and it says, if the player asks a question about the world, tell them to tell you. Are there goblins in that castle? I don't know. Are there? What is your character? And then build off of that. And it takes some of the responsibility off you and the work off of you. It invests the players. And a lot of times they'll have great ideas, you know, like and, and for Dungeons and Dragons, like when they're coming up with backstories. If they ask for something and you hadn't planned for it, say yes. You know, like I have one, one character who, uh, her backstory is that she was raised with pirates. And so is there a pirate island? There is now. And it sparks a whole bunch of ideas. And yeah. I think that's a that's a great way is to look, see what the players latch onto and say yes and build from their stuff too. That'll be a huge help. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that I see online quite often is that 
other systems seem to be better about this because they seem to stress the storytelling a little bit more. But at the end of the day, D&D is a collaborative storytelling game. For sure. Where you and your players are telling a story together. How much control you give is up to them, but more than one mind is always going to be better at coming up with a story or cool ideas than just you, you know, sitting in your office or wherever late into the night trying to figure out like, oh my God, what comes up next? Yeah. If you take what your players give you, it makes your job so much easier. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, like I know what I started doing is, is like I have a fair amount of, of content or, or story ideas planned, but it's basically like what happens next session has this much, you know, a lot of text. And then as it gets more and more remote, it boils down to like point form notes or questions for myself, stuff like that. And then what I find is, is that the players will do something and they don't care about this thread. They care about that thread. So let's let's funnel in that direction. And it, and forcing myself to kind of not get too worked up about what's going to happen three sessions, five sessions, ten sessions from now lets me evolve the story. Let's me lets me do things more organically. And it ends up being, I think, a better story and a more interesting story because it's, it's I'm building what I need and I'm building what they want to see. Something that I'm curious about, because this is something I'm kind of wrestling with myself right now, is how do you deal with, like, you've got, like, I've kind of got a story idea, like an epic adventure mm-hmm. style story. And there are hooks and stuff that I'd like them to get to that, you know, the, the kind of the dungeon master trick of like, oh, you went left instead of right. Well, that stuff's over here now. Like that kind of. Schrodinger's uh, troll. Yeah. Like it kind of, for some of the stuff, it'll work fine. But for yeah. some of it, it kind of won't because it's. I, and maybe this is just I haven't quite accepted that idea of like, no, you can just take that stuff, put it over here. But how do you deal with like stuff that you know is coming up and is kind of important to the story? And if they don't get to it, like how do you deal with like those kind of important story beats that you wanted to get to? Yeah, that's that's a tough one. Um, part of it is, 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 like I said, is just kind of like I, I've had to accept that my, my story is going to evolve. Like the, the main game I'm running now, when we started, I thought the structure was going to kind of be one thing and, and as we're playing i'm thinking, oh well, the players they don't want to play like that they want to play like this and so i started going okay well how can i bend the story and and i've had to give up on some plot points that i was really in love with because they're just they're not going to work and that's that's sad but i put them in my bucket and next game maybe we'll get to them and sometimes they're like oh this that, this this direction is so much better but such a better idea now but a lot of time i mean it's yeah it's just you can just go this story beat is going to happen here now or the story comes to them like you know you, you, you're expecting them to, to find the, the castle of the Mad Wizard and to break in and have this confrontation. They have no interest. They don't even pick up on that. They don't even realize that's a story thread. The Mad Wizard comes to them. Yeah. You know, and you could do stuff like that. You can bring these story beats or, or change how they're delivered. Um, you know, maybe you wanted this piece of information to be found in this dungeon. They don't go to the dungeon. So they find it, uh, you know, in the street or a friend brings it to them or an NPC uses it to pull them in another direction. I think it's just identifying what the, the, the real important stuff is and then being flexible on how you deliver it, I think, is what's, what's telling for me. Yeah, I think also probably just not getting completely married to your story ideas, like being yeah. open to your players don't want to do the thing. So, yeah. yeah, put it in your story bucket for next game. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Uh, how do you prepare your players for new homebrewed content? Uh, I think it really depends on, like, it depends on how much the, the content is going to break their expectations. So, for example, if they walk into a dungeon and there's a monster they've never seen before, I'm not going to warn them that this is a monster you've never seen before. I'm just going to throw it at them and they're going to adapt. But if they were to run into something that what I've done is is different than their preconceptions, then I'm going to say, no, 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 this is different. I've done, I'll say it out of character. I'll say to the players, 
you were the dragons in my setting all have feathers because I think feathered uh, dragons and dinosaurs more specifically are awesome. So I had to you know stop the players and go, okay, here's something that is different. You know, this is what kobolds look like. This is what dragonborn look like. This is what dragons look like because this, and I, I tell, tell them this directly because it breaks their expectations. Whereas if uh, it's like I said, just a, a new monster or something else like that, I'm not gonna. I don't necessarily need to warn them. Yeah. Um, if I bring in a new mechanic, I'll usually t- talk to them about it ahead of time. It's like here's a system I found for a different way to build boss monsters, and I stop the game. And I said, okay. What you're about to fight is not the normal way the game runs. So just, you know, and I give a little bit of a, a thing, you know, here's how it's different. Okay, let's get, are there any questions? I don't want someone to be, excuse me, feel like they're tripped up or, or, or tricked in the middle of combat. So I say, okay, this is what's going to happen. Here's how it's different. Let's fight. And then afterwards, was that cool? Did you like that? Should I do it again? No, you know, like that. So I think that's the, is, is this going to break their expectations? Is this going to cause a moment of confusion or alarm, you know? Um, if it's if they're playing in your setting and you have your own pantheon, that's to be expected. That's not a, a problem. You have to explain it to them, but it's not a fundamental change in, in what happens. So what's something that you know now that if you could go back to when you first started homebrewing content, that you would etch it into a tablet and give it to yourself? <laughs> I think the big one is is you don't have to do it all yourself. Give yourself permission to... Beg, borrow, scavenge, and steal from other content. Like, I think that's the big one. Like, I know comparing... Like, the very first 5th edition game I ran, I wrote everything myself. All the maps, all the monsters. Everything was my own work. And I compare that to the game I'm running now, where the adventures are about half homebrew, half stuff I've stolen from other adventures. And the quality of play is the same. I get to build a lot more content, and I'm a lot less stressed about how much stuff I need to write and I can focus my efforts on the stuff that excites me. Like again, like going back to Lothmine Fan Delver, redoing the end dungeon excited me. It was awesome. I got to do that. Redoing uh, the main town. That was not exciting. I didn't really care. I renamed some people and we moved on. So I think that's, that's a big thing is, is giving yourself permission to, to steal, to scavenge and focus on what excites you and use the, use other people's material to fill in the rest of it. You know, if you're not good at building monsters, Lots of people make monsters. Take them yourself. If you're not good at drawing dungeons, there is an infinity of dungeon maps out there that you can use and populate yourself. You know, that's I think that's that's the big thing is is find steal do what you do what you enjoy fill in the rest. Yeah. Don't doing that doesn't make you not a real dungeon master. Like get rid of that idea that to be a real dungeon master you have to be like Matt Mercer and make everything yourself because that that dude is something else. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm pretty sure he steals stuff, too. Oh, I am so sure he does. Yeah. And uh, at the end of the day, that's also his job. Yes, it really is. Yeah. And yeah. for most of us, dungeon mastering is not our job. And, and I think the thing is, is that at the end of, like really, at the end of the day, you're there to present your players for something awesome. If you didn't create 100% of yourself, that's fine, as yeah. long as they enjoy it. Yeah, and as long as you have fun doing it. Like, if it becomes, if dungeon mastering becomes more effort than fun, you know, it might, you might need to readjust your priorities. Like, if it's just stressful and you're, or you're overburdening yourself, you're going to burn yourself out. You're not going to have as much fun, and your players aren't going to have as much fun because you're not able to run a great game. Cool. Well, thank you so much for coming out. Oh, my uh, pleasure. Thank you this for having was me. Super awesome. I learned a few things. Yeah. Go ahead. Same here. Um, is there anywhere online that people can find you if they have questions about homebrewing, if you want people to ask you questions? Yeah, for sure. I'm on Twitter, uh, at Malcolm in space. Yeah, it's M-A-L-C-O-L-M. 
But yeah, that's that's the best place to find me online is on Twitter. Okay. Yeah. Cool. So yeah, thanks so much for coming out and thanks a lot. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode. Our logo and other artwork is done by the wonderful Haley Boros. Our theme music is Overworld by Kevin McLeod. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and subscribe on iTunes or Google Play. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook at DMs of Vancouver, all one word. We'd love to hear from you folks about topics you'd like us to cover in future episodes. Lastly, if you want to help us out, we've got a Patreon account where you can become a patron for as little as $1 a month. Each little bit helps, and all the money will go to making this podcast as awesome as possible. See you next time, folks. Roll for initiative!